Welcome to Wild Hearts at Work, a podcast redefining our relationship with work through stories and conversations with Wild Hearts who have dared to challenge the status quo. And now, here's your host, Melissa Boggs. Hello, and welcome back to the Wild Hearts at Work podcast. I am your host, Melissa Boggs, and I am so excited about my guest today because he and his organization had an immense impact on my life, and I'm really excited to share that with you. So with that, let me introduce the founder of the Scooter Store, Doug Harrison. Good morning. Hi, Doug. Good Good morning. morning. How are you? Very well. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Well, so what I want to start with um, might be a little bit self-indulgent, but it's my podcast, so I get to do that. (laughs) Um, In order to kind of share with the listeners who you are and why you matter to me and why you matter to the podcast, I actually want to share a message that I wrote to you about two years ago now. Um. And then after I do that, we'll talk a little bit more about the scooter store and, and fill people in on, on the basics. Great. So uh, this was September of 2019. I wrote this message to you on LinkedIn. Hi, Doug. In July of 2001, I received a phone call from my temp agency in Austin. I was 20 years old and I was sleeping late after staying up doing homework the night before. The temp agency asked if I could be dressed and at a new place by noon. By the way, it was 10 a.m. They wanted me to go to a place called the Scooter Store to fill an admin assistant role. I almost said no, because Razor scooters were all the rage, and I wasn't about to go back into retail. I was so much more adult than that. Something told me to say yes. She explained a little further about the actual product and the mission, and so I went. I had a couple temp jobs to that point, and I had no way of knowing that this one would change my life. I worked at the Scooter store several times over 12 years, never leaving for more than a couple months at a time. Every time that the grass was greener to my young self, I was quickly reminded that not all organizations thought the way we did, and not every org was relentlessly focused on their mission and their values. Not every org celebrated the way that we did. I'm writing you today because I want you to know how much my experience at the Scooter store shaped my life. Ten years ago, I learned about a way of working called Scrum while I was in IT at the scooter store, and it quickly became my career path. Now, I head up the largest global Scrum organization as Chief Scrum Master and Co-CEO. In a way, I am the Chief Culture Officer. My focus is largely on the experience of our team members and their connection with our customers, and I am guided every day by the experience I was fortunate to have because of you. We have a relentless focus on our values and are seeking to fulfill our own mission. It's important for you to know how many lives you did change and shape in the world, and not just those with limited mobility. The ripple effect of the scooter store is not only felt by those of us who are employee owners, but our employees and their employees to come. We are world changers now because of you. And there's more, but eventually I said, thank you, Doug, Melissa. So, Doug, I'm going to ask you to talk about the scooter store, but I, I want to ask you first, when you got that message and you think back to starting the scooter store, did you ever imagine that that was going to be the ripple effect, that 
you know, seven, eight years after the scooter store had closed its doors, sadly, that those are the types of messages that you were going to get? Uh, no idea on either one. You know, we, we, when we started the business, it was my wife and I that started it together. Susanna, I, I know you know Susanna, but mm-hmm. uh, we, we never could have guessed what it was going to become at the end of that journey. Um, and it was just so much more wonderful than we ever had anticipated. Uh, so as part of one, no, that was a surprise. And then, you know, the scooter store did end. We were a big company that did a lot of business with the federal government and, uh, the federal government's hard to fight with sometimes. And, uh, although we were ultimately vindicated, we lost a big fight with the government, but for seven years later at the time of your note, you know, more than 10 years later now for that group to still be strong and out there doing great things in the world, trying to be mission led value centric, uh, that's as sad as it is to think about, you know, not having the scooter store. It, it, it really you know, warms my heart to see people like you doing what you're doing. Uh, lots of other young officers and leaders from all over the company that are out wild all around the country, all around the world now doing great things uh, that, are, that are helping companies see that if they take care of their people, those people really will take care of the business for them. Absolutely. Um, so just quickly for the listeners who are not of the scooter store family, which I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of them, but, um, can you just quickly tell us what the scooter store did the years that you were in business, sort of just the basics of the company? Sure. Uh, so what we did, the scooter store, the scooters we're talking about, were not the razors. You were afraid you were coming (laughs) to sell. Uh, these are the little three wheeled battery powered scooters for the elderly and disabled. Um, as the company evolved, our primary product became little small indoor power wheelchairs. Uh, our goal and really the genesis of the company was I had a, uh, grandmother that was mobility challenged, uh, ended up moving into a nursing home and, and hated it, hated being a nursing home, wanted to be in her house. And, uh, and she unfortunately passed away before we even found a scooter, but that was always our thought. Boy, if grandma had had one of the, one of these, she would have loved this. So we started with that kind of scooter. Uh, what we found is some of those scooters are hard to maneuver inside. So we kind of moved to a little smaller power wheelchair, but we were in all types of mobility equipment. And the business we were in was really the freedom and independence business. Uh, obviously, as you know, I see you smiling, right? That was the, <laughs> the genesis of our mission statement saying we want to stay focused on the fact that although we were called the scooter store, what we really sold were freedom and independence. Uh, for people with limited mobility that wanted to be able to get around inside their house. So I see you mouthing the words. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the other things I never would have guessed and uh, never would have guessed it lasted this long and really never would have guessed it was this rare. Those nine words in our, our mission statement, almost everybody that was one of our employee owners at scooter store, they still know those nine words provide freedom and independence to people with limited mobility. Uh, That's what we did. Yeah. Not just the nine words, but uh, so we also had a set of core ideologies, right? Uh, right or right. to other companies, sometimes they call them core values. And I was thinking this morning, like, can I rattle off the core ideologies? And I am pretty sure that I can. All right. And I, cool. and I was there through an iteration of them. So they did, they, the wording did change. So I may not be completely in the latest oh. version. Okay, oh, let's see. All, the, all right. So always do the right thing. Yep. Be phenomenal. Yep. Grow, grow aggressively. Yep. Achieve financial success. Yep. Have fun. Yep. I feel like I skipped one. You skipped one. Do you remember what it is? 
Focus on the customer. Focus on the customer. Um, so again, good. the people listening right now who know me from sort of, you know, the, the agile world are probably going, yeah, that makes sense. Like all of those things. Right. Um, so let me ask you this. When you guys and gals started the customer, started the company, did you know that you wanted it to be different? Like, was did you set out for it to be what it ended up being? Or was that an organic thing that just happened? Um, a, a difficult question because there's some layers to your question. I don't even know if you intend it that way. But yes, when we started out, we wanted it to be, we knew we wanted it to be different, but not in what it turned into be. We didn't know what it was going to turn into be. We just knew I didn't, I didn't want it to be the same old, same old stodgy old business. Um, I'd grown up as a petroleum engineer. My dad was a petroleum engineer and it was a tough market. The oil business is a boom and bust business and it's, it can be very tough on the people that work there. Uh, they're very, they're all the big ones are publicly owned. They're publicly traded, very focused on stock value and very unfocused, not in my opinion, not nearly focused enough on the, the people value that was there. So I didn't like the way I was treated when I was there. When I had great ideas, it was really hard for me to get them heard. And so the different was when we started a business um, that we wanted one that didn't treat people that way. And that that was almost the entire genesis of you know how, how the details we have are don't treat people that way. Treat. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny what occurs to me. There's a line from a Green Day song that says, um, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And I kind of wondered, you know, were you a wild heart at work prior to this company and therefore decided to go and do something where you didn't have to feel that way and neither did anyone else? Um, It sort of sounds like that was the case. Oh, I, you know, I'll, I'll even, I'll see that one and I'll raise you one. So in engineering, not only at work, uh, in engineering school, which can be very stressful, I went to Colorado School of Mines. My, one of my best friends, my roommate, Scott, really stressed over going to test. He was very smart. He wanted to be the world's best petroleum engineer, but he'd just get stressed. And so I got up one morning and put on my blue terry cloth robe and cowboy boots because MASH, <laughs> MASH was a big TV show at the time. Yes. And uh, so I had on a cowboy hat and boots and a bathrobe and that was it i know that's all i was wearing and said all right scott let's go to the final and he was shocked that i said come on he couldn't believe it. and i had my calculator and my you know all my engineering tools but that was it no other clothes and <laughs> so i was a little uh, kind of a wild heart even as a young engineer but and but it started with that that i wanted my roommate i wanted scott to have a better experience and just relax some so it was you know by coming out of my shell I could see that it could help him have a better result. And he did good on that test, by the way. So. Yes. Way to go, Scott. <laughs> However many years ago that was. A long time. Okay. So I can't help but think of all of the rallies that we had. When you describe being in the robe in the cowboy boots, like that's not too far off from being dressed up like a chef mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, some of the things that we did. So um, before we get into the fun stuff of that, can you tell me a little bit about what inspired some of the, shall we call them habits that we had at the scooter store and some of those influences? Sure. Um, you know, and that's really the, the, 
it, it was all fun, but behind that, there were some very specific nuts and bolts that were in place saying uh, it wasn't silly just to be silly. There was a means to an end, uh, an end to the means. We said, this is what we want to accomplish by that. So as much as I left an engineering world where it was very top-down, uh, micromanaged life for the people that worked offshore, we, we were drilling wells. If things went wrong, things would blow up, catch on fire, people would die. So it was managed very intensely. And we left that to start our own business. That was in 1991 when we started. It was just me and Susanna. I skipped over that part of your question before. But so when <laughs> we started the business, we had a six-week run where we, we quit our jobs in New Orleans, sold our house, moved to Texas, moved into my parents' vacation house here in New Braunfels, opened the business, and found out we were going to have our first baby in six weeks. Mm, oh, my so goodness. We, we started with the whirlwind. Um but what I fell into real fast was once we got big enough that we needed employees, I found that I was managing those employees the same way that I'd been managed as an engineer. Mm. Uh, so if you talk to some early, early employees at the scooter store, 91 through 95, 96, and you told them what a great person I was and a great manager, they'd go, oh, not Doug Harrison. I worked for that guy. He was he was a jerk. Oh, my um, goodness. But. For in a you know much lighter scenario, but you hear it in a horrible way about you know kids that are abused often grow up to be parents that abuse their kids. Mm -hmm. And as much as I knew I wanted different and I wanted better for my employees, I fell into some bad habits. So long story way around to come around to say, I went finally went to a class that was sponsored by Inc. Magazine up at MIT, and I met this amazing lady that was talking about how to get ordinary employees, ordinary people to produce awesome results. And everything she talked about was, was very common sense, but they were all things I just hadn't even thought about. How do you do this? How do you, how do you get the people in your company to work for you? And every time she came off stage, I had questions for, her. um, <laughs> I was going, I, I don't understand. How do you do this? How do you do that? And at the end she said, I'm look, Doug, I'm writing a book. And I want you to be to read an early, it's on a CD. If you'll be one of my early beta version, I'd like you to read it and give me your feedback on the book. And her name is Dr. Matthews. And I said, Dr. Matthews, I'm telling you, I'm running around chasing all these crazy employees all the time. I don't know when I'm going to have time to read a book. And she said, Doug, trust me, you need to read this book. At the time, her book was called How to Hire Awesome Employees. And I thought, oh, okay, I got to have that book because I, I just had a bunch of idiots and clowns that worked for me and no <laughs> awesome employees. The thought of how do you get an awesome employee was uh, just that kind of blew my mind. So she sent me the CD with the book on it. I popped it in. And the part that I remember the most, although I've got several copies on my shelf because I give it away all the time, said uh, awesome employees won't work for mediocre companies. Ooh. So... It went on to say, so if you don't have any awesome employees, it means your company is mediocre or worse. So I immediately got on the phone and called Dr. Matthews and said, wait, wait, you're saying all these stupid people are my fault? <laughs> and she said, well, I didn't say that, but as long as you did, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, her book goes on to say, here's how you build an awesome organization. And it's about, you know, what, what does it take to have an organization that people want to be part of? Uh, with some very basic mechanics that they, they want to know what you're doing. You know, people like to be part of a big organization. They like to be part of a university or a neighborhood group or a sports team. Uh, they like to be part of something bigger, whatever it is. And second to that, they also like to be part of a group that's trying to do something great to make the world better. 
Well, if you can do both of those at work, you just got to tell them what it is you do. Uh, so that's where we changed. We really honed in our focus, saying our focus is we're in the freedom and independence business for people with limited mobility. That's what we do to make the world better. We help those people have a more free, more independent life. And all of a sudden, when people get a call at 10 a.m. and saying, hey, do you want to work for this company? A lot of the great ones will get out of bed and go, I don't know, I'll go, at least go check it out. Absolutely. Um, so the long there's a very long story to say that was the beginning of me kind of opening my eyes to go, okay, I've got to really think about how I'm running the business so that the people that work here have an awesome experience. And Dr. Matthew's point, which I would, I would support a hundred percent is I've never met an employee that didn't believe they had the potential to be a top performer. You know, we always in business, we talk about who are your A players, who are your high potential employees. And the answer is all of them, every mm -hmm. single one that ever walked in the door, if you're willing to treat them the right way. And if you don't, you say, no, no, this is the way we treat people. Here's our set of rules. This is the way we work. And if you can be awesome inside of that, a handful of people will try their best. And a lot of them won't like that structure. They tend to be a little more wild and rule breakers <laughs> kind of to your wild heart <laughs> idea. Um, and if the company can find a way to say, let's figure out a way to let all those people that are really, truly find and be their best. Um, that was my original blueprint. The book now is called Building the Awesome Organization which I feel horrible about because I gave Dr. Matthew such a hard time about says, look, your book says how to hire awesome employees. And all I want to do is just hire some awesome employees. And you're really saying it's all my fault. Here's how you build your company and the awesome people will, will come. Uh, and so she changed the title. It's called building the awesome organization. Awesome. Great, great book for everybody that's reading about that. But I really feel if she'd left the title, if I'd left her alone, hadn't picked on her, she'd left the title how to hire awesome employees, a whole lot more people would have bought it and would be out reading the book. <laughs> so that, uh, that was our original start. The other one that you probably remember, uh, Vern Harnish, who's the guy that started YEO, also wrote a book called Rockefeller Habits, that inside of Rockefeller Habits, there were a set of habits on here's from his study of big business around the world. Here's what successful companies do, the habits they have, that make things scalable. His model for all that was J.D. Rockefeller. And uh, so I read the book. Uh, I like J.D. Rockefeller. He was an oil guy. So I said, okay, if you can do that, <laughs> I can do that. And a lot of those habits you talk about are, are quarterly planning, our one play, our one page strategic plan, uh, the meeting rhythm. All those things came out of Rockefeller habits. Uh, so they weren't ideas I invented. I just, when I heard them, and went, I like that. We copied some of those ideas really well. Yeah. Well, and I think you extended them. I was looking around uh, for those watching on video because I'm pretty sure I have the book on my shelf, like within, within arm's reach right now. Good. Um, but yes, I think you extended them because you found a way, like if you read the book, he doesn't necessarily talk about making them fun, but because that was one of our core ideologies, we also made them fun. Made um, fun. So what are some of the, so we called them rallies. Um, so on a quarterly basis, we would kick off the theme for the quarter. Um, what are some of the rallies that you were, what, what were some of the most fun rallies for you personally? Well, uh, you know, probably the most memorable top of my head is, is riding in on an elephant. Um, so were you there for that one? I was, um, 
So, you know, despite the fact that the elephant nearly ran me off the top of the metal <laughs> roof as we were coming in, but uh, the theme that quarter is called the Customer Wow Challenge. We wanted some more wow in the customer experience. We were very efficient and effective, but we wanted more wow. Um, and that's kind of how the, our themes, our rallies would evolve. We pick a thing that said this quarter, this 90 days, this is what we're really, we're going to pick the one thing. And the one thing was we really wanted to, to do something more wow with our customer experience. And so when I came in to meet all the employees, I came in riding an elephant. So everybody went, wow. wow. Um, <laughs> and the, for us, the, that was the, the perfect thing in a 90-day exercise was to do something around the rally that when everybody went, oh, my God, the, the crazy guy just came riding in a belt. They remember, oh, because we're working on customer wow. What can I be doing today to make more? to be working on that for the company and it helped keep everybody focused during that 90 day cycle. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions was like, how do you balance fun in the business? But I think you sort of just answered that. Like the fun is what kept it front of mind for people. Um, um, and, and so, I mean, that's a complicated question too. How do you keep it fun? But <laughs> you know, so it, you keep things changing. The, the elephant was fun. The day we launched balloons out of the parking lot and, all the executive staff drove in, parked their car, got in a balloon and floated away. Um, <laughs> you know, those, they were all fun, but they were all tied to a theme that people would think about. But the other one is just not to take yourself too seriously. Um, if, if I think from leadership down, from the CEO down, if everybody's willing to accept that we're all human and we all want to strive for perfection, but we don't want to stumble and not take any action because we can't be perfect yet and we'll accept the human failings, the human condition, that people will try their best if when they fall down, if you'll just pick them up and dust them off. Uh, our, our core ideology said, be phenomenal. You know, said, I, you know, I wanted you to be a huge success or leave a smoking hole in the ground where you crashed and burned, but just don't be mediocre. Uh, but if, yeah. if that's what leadership's there for, is to pat you on the back when you tried hard or to high five you when you've won big, um, then work can be fun every day. Absolutely. Um, and I have to say, like, I didn't plan on going here and I hope you don't mind if we do, but I remember probably even more than the fun, I remember your vulnerability. You know, I remember that we went through some difficult times, you know, in the 12 years that I was there and then even beyond that. And, you know, I remember you getting up in front of all of us and, and saying like, this is a hard time. And, you know, sometimes even being emotional and not being afraid to show us that. And I think what was important about that was that made it okay for us also to be human. And <laughs> this might seem like a leap to some, but that's important to the business too. Like mm -hmm. I work with organizations and I talk with them about the importance of vulnerability and creativity and in innovation, that if you're not willing to be a human person, then you're probably not willing to like try things and therefore you're not going to get to the, you know, the next big thing that's going to leapfrog you in front of your competition. So um, yeah, I mean, I definitely remember your willingness to just be a human being in front of us. And I appreciate that. I know a lot of people did. Well, thanks. Uh, I am a very emotional person by nature and, you know, it's, it, in business, not in business as men were told, Oh, you need to hide that. Uh, but in hiding it, it, it suggests to everybody else, they shouldn't be that way either. Uh, if you've made a mistake, you, sh you don't necessarily own up to it, which I, I think is just, that's being coward. You just own up to it and say, 
this is what happened. This is, this is tough. This is wrong. Um, and for me, it's just, I'm just very, I've always been emotional. So I, I, uh, but you also know, I mean, I know this is part of one of the things you want to talk about, but, uh, our company was 40% owned by you and everybody else that worked there. So, uh, you were all my fellow employee owners. You know, I owed it to you to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so that was to, in, in my opinion, in my heart that said, I would just be honest with you guys. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, let's go there for a second. Um, so we all were employee owners and mm-hmm. I know what impact that had on me, but I'm curious where that started for you or when you made that decision. Um, we talked about it all the time. Yeah, before we ever created ESOP, I I asked everybody there, even when we were 10, 12 employees, to treat it like it was their own business. And and that involved uh, how you dealt with the customer, how we made financial decisions, buying decisions, all the way down to if you're walking in the building and there's trash in the parking lot. I said, you know me, if I was walking by that, I'd go pick it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had facilities teams and we had some great people that took care of us, but if I saw something wrong, whether it was trash in the parking lot, if I saw an employee that looked like they're really in distress, uh, whatever, I would go get involved. And so my appeal from day one was always asking all of our employees to treat it like it was theirs. And kind of as I went through my self-discovery process, reading things like Dr. Matthew's books, doing more and more classes with Vern, with YEO, with YPO, um, I finally said, all right, I got to put my money where my mouth is. And I wanted everybody to treat it like it was their business. So we we carved out 40% of the company and put it into an ESOP. So all the employees that were there at the time, it was a unique vehicle. There are a lot of ways to do that with stock and phantom stock. Uh, but with ESOP, it let us uh, give something to everybody that was there at the time and let it accrue over time. Uh, it had some tax preferential treatment for the ESOP at the time. So we like that as well. But but it let me really truly say for everybody that worked there, you know, your very first day you started working there, you were earning shares in the ESOP. You became a company owner the day you started. Yeah. And it had such an impact. I mean, the fact that we talked about it a lot, right? Because a lot of companies these days, it's not that uncommon to like have stock in the company, right? Or to have stock options. Right. But what was different about that was everything that you just said, right? You're an owner in the company. And we we talked about it in that way. So the thing that I remember the most about that was I learned how to have courageous conversations because we had something called the employee owner challenge. And you were not allowed to go to your boss and tattle about your friend on your team (laughs) unless you had first taken the initiative, taken the courage, you know, had the courage to speak to that person as two owners. Hey, we both own part of this company it gave you it gave you a bit of you know ownership and courage in the environment that you were in and so i remember that having a big impact on me because you know i learned again how to have very hard conversations cuz your boss would say i'm not stepping in until you've you know they would help mm-hmm. but not until you had first had that conversation yourself right so um yeah that i remember that had more of an impact frankly than the money portion of it um, right. or just the ownership part. Um, so I'm curious, I'm going to rattle off a couple of the things that may have been different about the scooter store. Uh, and then I'm curious how your peers, I'm going to let you think about it for a second, like how your CEO peers, I'm sure that you were in, you know, groups and talking to other CEOs. And then also 
you know, even your executive team, how they were responding to that. So first of all, I was not kidding when I said that we bought confetti by the boatload. So at one point I was in learning and development, which was kind of a sister department to, you know, the people team. And it was only then that I realized that we had an entire closet of confetti. And on our Facebook group, which I'll talk about a little bit later, people are still posting pictures of the confetti in like pockets from like Mm -hmm. eight years ago. (laughs) So we had the confetti, we had the rallies, we had a yearly gala, um, we had the ESOP, we had crazy games sometimes. Like I remember, you know, playing like incentive games when I was in sales. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you walked in and there was a, there was an energy in the air. It wasn't like any other place you ever walked into. And so I'm curious, like, did you get pushback on that from either other CEOs or your own team about the investment that, that took or that this just seems crazy here? Um, so uh, yes, to all of those. So, you know, we, we started, I met, uh, Dr. Matthews in 96 and we started trying to formalize all that process in 97 saying, let's put, we wanted all this baked into the company. Um, you know, one of the things that really pushed me across the line. So I was thinking about all these things. I went to a little Mexican restaurant in San Antonio on Broadway called Tomatillo's. And on the back of their menu, while this was all fresh in my mind, they had a big mission statement. There's a whole paragraph and said, you could ask anybody in the restaurant and if they couldn't tell you their mission statement verbatim. You got a free sopapilla with your lunch or dinner. I oh went, my goodness. So I asked every waiter and waitress and bus boy. And because, <laughs> because at the time we had a mission statement on the wall somewhere and I asked everyone, they all nailed it. I didn't get a free sopapilla. Man. But I came away going, I want, heck with the Sopapilla, I want that. Mm. And so within a month, I'd hired a guy I do in San Antonio, and we created this group called PeopleWorks to say that was his charge. I said, we had some, we had our, our cardiologies, and as you said, they took a little shape over time. We, but our mission statement, we reduced our nine words. And I said, I want every person in the company to know our mission statement, know our nine words. And he heard the Tomatillo story ad infinitum and said, I want everybody to know it. <laughs> and so we started and launched and said, let's, let's get that in there. Um, but we had a handful of 97. We didn't have an executive staff Had a couple of managers. Some of them thought all this was very silly. Uh, we're really just in business. And most of those guys didn't last very long. Um, it was, uh, it's something I really, once I saw it, it was one of those things you, know, you said at the beginning, did I know this is where I wanted the business to go? And in 1991, I didn't, but six years later, once I'd seen it and tasted it and touched it, I went, I want that. And then people that weren't a fit for that kind of naturally started evolving out of the company and people that did fit it, um, got up early and came running in from Austin and tasted it and went, Oh, I want more of that. And, and they just naturally joined with it. One of my, one of my CEO friends, uh, and they were my friends that were big company owners also, we're all over the board as well from one of them sent me a book right after I started talking all this uh, called why nice guys always finish last. Mm-mm. Uh, and that was his <laughs> advice. There's actually a book on that. Uh, <laughs> why the CEO is supposed to be, you know, the big tough guy. Um, I don't, I did not keep that book. Um, I have a hard time. I have a hard time throwing away books, but I tossed that one. But 
uh, so I went from that extreme to I had some other friends. Uh, I was friends with the two guys, Graham and Morris, that started Rackspace. And we lent them some of our people work staff for a, sometimes a day or a couple days to go help them build their culture team inside of Rackspace uh, as they grew. Because some of them saw it and went, not only is it not crazy, teach us how to do that. And we'd lend out some people works staff around to go help other people build their culture. So it was, it was all over the board. Yeah, I can imagine. I think one of the things you just said that I want to highlight is that you have to kind of put a stake in the ground and say like, this is who we're going to be, not just because, not for your own sake, not just for your own sake or even the sake of the company, but the sake of the people who just don't relate to it. You know, like if you can just say like, this is who we are. And if it doesn't work for you, we get it. We love you. And, you know, it's okay. But I think a lot of companies try to like straddle the line, kind of Mm -hmm. try to be everything to everyone. And I think, you know, that's the decision that you made to put the stake in the ground, made sure that all of us were there, that were there were, making a decision to be there based on reality. Like this is what the company's going to be. If you want to be here, be here. That's awesome. So I, I think that's an important point to make there. Uh, I, I think it's a huge point because knowing it, the better the company does about really honestly and accurately describing itself with its missions, with its values, we call them ideologies and saying, this is who we are. Um, there's a failing of companies and a failing of employees to say uh, there are people, the employee side that go, well, I could be, that sounds like a great job. I'd be great in that job. Well, you might be, but if you don't align with what we want, it doesn't matter how good you are at the skill. Um, you know, in a company, I don't, I don't know what you call them in your background, but somebody that's a great performer, a great performer, but is a cultural misfit is, is we call them a terrorist because <laughs> oh, yeah. they're inside the company and they do horrible things inside the company and because, and if they're a great performer, they get lots of accolades for their work performance, but they spend all the rest of their time just tearing down the cultural institutions. And you really got to, in my opinion, you got to root out those people and, and get rid of them. Yeah. But, but the companies think I can train any employee to work here and you can't, some people fit with you and some you can't. We at the scooter store, we called it loving them out the door. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to hate them and yell at them, but you could, once as soon as you realize that you needed to love them out the door. Yeah. I actually think Netflix has a similar, um, very outward ideology that they share with everyone. They have a, a no assholes uh, ideology. Yep. Um, and this is my podcast, so I can curse if I want to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's more fair to everyone, frankly, like, mm-hmm. because if, if the values are up front, then an employee can look at them and say, yes, I do. Or no, I don't align to them. And, you know, I get the terrorist part. I think what's interesting is those people believe they're doing the right thing too, right? Oh, uh, like sure. they have the best of intentions. Um, but some some people think that companies like the scooter store need to be saved from the fun because nice guys finish last, right? You know, and so it gives them a chance to kind of, um, I don't know, opt out of that if it's not going to fit for them, right? And what they need to do is just go find the right organization and they're, they're different coaches for different organizations. Uh, you know, uh, Popovich here in San Antonio is a great coach 
for the team, the way the Spurs run a team. And then you look at teams like LA when they had Kobe and LeBron out there, that requires a whole different coach. Mm-hmm. And I think if you'd taken a, a huge world acclaim, he's at the Olympics right now, taking Popovich and said, here, you go coach uh, Shaq and Kobe and those guys out there, he wouldn't have fit that. He would have failed there as much as those those players with a different value set mindset would have failed if they'd been on the Spurs. So it's I do think the importance of knowing who you are so that you know new people coming in, are they going to be really a fit for that or not? is is really key to success for both people, for the company and the individual while they're there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so TSS, sorry, the scooter store sadly closed their doors to 2013. Or, yep. um, but I want to ask you how, where you think we would be now and more specifically, how do you think that we would have managed the pandemic? Mm. Um, well, I do think about that a lot. So, you know, as we're coming up on close to 10 years, um, I, I miss it terribly, you know, and where we'd be, um, you know, who knows? Uh, it's, we'd, we'd still be focused on, we'd still be in the freedom and independence business. Uh, people still need that um, and always will. Uh, as, but relative to the pandemic, um it, it was amazed me how fast businesses responded. Mm-hmm. You know, little bitty, but great. It's one of, they're always the best. Little hole in the wall Mexican restaurant down the street from us. Within a month or two, had their menu online, digital, and you could order from your smartphone. So you could just pick it up curbside when you got there. <laughs> the, the world did an amazing job about responding with technology in a way that if you'd ask Jalisco before the pandemic, hey, when when can you put your menu online so I can just order from my phone? It would have cost them tons of money and taken years because it just would have sounded like too much. Um, and in the same way, I really truly believe any individual can be a top performer, can be a superstar in the right environment. So many businesses, the ones that survived the pandemic, took that attitude and said, we're going to do whatever it takes to survive, to be here and evolve. Whatever has to change will change. Uh, and and for the scooter store, that's what we would have done. We had a lot of people that worked in a very dense, densely populated office space, uh, and all that would have had to go away. We'd still have people working at home. Uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't have a headset now and, <laughs> and has learned to work online. Um, and I think that's been a good stopgap. I don't know how long that'll last. I still believe in the value of the human connection and seeing people face to face. And so I think there'll be some jobs in some places that may always stay at home, but uh, I think we would have done a whole lot of that, but we still would have been obsessed with our mission, which was taking care of those people all over the country with limited mobility. By this time, 10 years later, probably would have been taking care of people all over the world with limited mobility and, um, and, and, and solved a lot of the, the face-to-face, six-feet separation, social distancing issues with with technology to get there. Yeah, I have a lot of faith that, you know, leaning into the mission, leading into our core ideologies would have just sent us right through it. Like we would have found a way as long as we were sort of in the boat together, which oh. we always always were. We always know? were. You know, some, one, some of my favorite days where we had a, um, somewhere back in the early 2000s, uh, Dell right down the road in Austin got hacked and we got hit by the same virus attack 
they came at us and uh, Jay Green, that was our head of IT, saved us. So <laughs> we had a, it's on your podcast, so you started it, but we had a kick-ass IT team. So uh, the, a lot of the solution would have been technology, but we had a team in-house that actually outperformed Dell, who got, got all the accolades down the road. But so whatever it took, I mean, whether it was uh, home-based work, uh, you know, vir- uh, uh, virtual private networks to get people connected and working online, we would have found a way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing that I wanted to make sure to highlight was, yes, it was, you know, we're all in it together. We'll do anything. But you also always honored families, spouses, life outside of work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had our gala every year that we brought our spouses to. And we actually at one point went on an all company cruise, which, by the way, I was six months pregnant for. So did not have the same experience as everyone else. Um, but my husband still talks about that, you know. Uh, I've worked, obviously worked at other companies since then, and that's not always the norm to recognize that people have lives and relationships outside of work and not just acknowledge it, but actually bring it in, like bring them here. Um, You know, everyone in my department knew my kids, you know, and saw them grow up and we knew your kids and saw them grow up, grow up. So I just wanted to mention that. I think that's one of the things that made it one of Fortune's best places to work. Oh, I would you. be remiss if I did not mention. So in 2004, we were number 58. And in 2010, we were number 38 on Fortune's best places to work, which was something that we were all extremely proud of. Well, thanks. Yeah. And I, I, I 100% believe you know one of the biggest failings in the work-life world is saying that you have a work life and you have a personal life and you need to find balance. But even the the thing about, oh, work-life balance kind of implies I've got this side of my life and that side of my life. And as far as I know, I just have one life mm-hmm. and, and I need it to be healthy and I need it to be happy. And my impression, it's a hundred percent based on my own experience is my best day at work has a governor set on it. That's limited by, how good things are at home. And I've, I've never ever had a horrible day at home. If the kids were sick or if somebody was hurt or there's some stress going on in my family where I still said, Oh my God, this was the best day ever. Cause I got <laughs> these three things done at work. Right. Um, but conversely, I have had great days. I look back, go, this was a great day because one of my kids, uh, Lauren graduated on the all A's list again, or Trevor won a tennis match. Even if work had been hard that day, I still felt better as a person, as a dad, as a, a husband, as a sibling, if my home life was happy and healthy. And so my commitment, and I, I had the, the beauty, the benefit, the luxury of, I started this business with Susanna. So we came into it saying, how do we, how do we not lose ourselves in a business while we're starting, while we still have to have a happy, healthy, loving relationship and a great whole life. And so my commitment through all that was saying, how do you help everybody? I really believe you can help everybody that works there be their best whole self, whatever that takes, that they'll do better at work for you. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I have to mention yesterday was a big day, I believe. Was it not your anniversary yesterday? 34 years yesterday. 
happy anniversary you. to you and Susanna both. Um, Thank you very much. That's a big milestone. That's big. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> um, so as we're starting to wrap up, um, I just want to mention a little bit more about the impact because, you know, part of this podcast is part of the point of this podcast is to elevate some of these stories so that people out there know one, that you're not alone in thinking this way to that there is a positive impact on the business when we unleash creative people in this way and allow them to be their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest impact that I see is that we have a Facebook group called the heart of the scooter store. Again, it has now been, I think eight years since, you know, the scooter store was not a quote unquote, you know, business yet there are 1,401 members of this group. Mm And it is an active group and it is not one of those groups where it's just a bunch of spam, you know, about like come and buy my thing, but rather right. people posting pictures of the t-shirts that they still have or talking about, you know, what they're doing at work now as a result of what they learned at the scooter store. And as a matter of fact, shout out to everyone on that Facebook group, because when I posted about this podcast, I felt really the most understood in that Facebook group. I knew that the people in that group would know why I was doing this and why it was important. Um, and I know they're going to be very excited that you're one of my first guests. <laughs> uh, very, very honored to be on the inaugural episode with you. That's great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just want to highlight that like there is an impact and it goes on for a long, long time. And so I think I can speak for all of us when I just say thank you. Like, thank you for making all those decisions that we just talked about. Thank you for, you know, riding an elephant and for <laughs> buying confetti by the boatload because it didn't just make a difference in the business then. It has inspired all of us and sent us all out into the world like our own, you know, I don't want to say missionaries, but you know, our own set of wild hearts that are going to go out and help other people be the same way. So thank you from all of us. Well, you're, you're, you're very welcome. It's uh, we, we had a great 22 years and created it. We really created a cool thing. And, and I say it was we, cause it took, uh, I had an idea and everybody had to co-opt into it and say, yep, we're in we're, they weren't on the elephant with me, but they were on the ride with me. So, yeah. Uh, we all made it work. Amazing. Well, again, Doug, is there anything you wanted to say before we wrap up? Any last remarks at all? No, I mean, for all the scooter store group that's watching out there, uh, you know, hi to everybody. Uh, for the the business owners and the people that you work with and coach, um, I really, truly didn't start this way. Uh, I was on a path to run and manage and lead the company the same way I'd been managed, as much as the fact that I quit the big corporate world because I didn't like that. Uh, and it was a, it's a learned process. Um, it, as much as I was crazy and silly in college and wore a robe to a final <laughs> learning to run the company this way was a, a just a learned skill. Uh, it's, it's, I was just an engineer. I wasn't a business guy. I didn't have an MBA. Uh, but I just, I read the books. I found some great models that said, if you treat, if you really do come to appreciate that if you treat people well, if you treat them in a way that you want every single person there to have their best whole life they can have, they'll do phenomenal things for you. And if I can do it, anybody can follow. 
And I hope some people will follow more podcasts like yours and, and read more books that are out there about how the, how to really help your employees find the most value they can in life. And the, the value will come back to you as a business owner. I could not have said it better myself. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Doug. Thanks for everything you did for us, but thanks for being here on the podcast and sort oh. of reliving some of these memories so many years later. Um, Again, this is the Wild Hearts at Work podcast. Uh, for the books that we mentioned today, I'll put links to them in the show notes. And I want to thank everyone for joining us this week. Until next time, dear hearts, stay wild. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Wild Hearts at Work. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. For more resources and to connect with Melissa, visit melissaboggs.com. Also, if you or someone you know is doing great work in a wild way, get in touch about being a guest on the show. Until next time.